I do want to just pause and thank Sherry very much for sharing that wonderful message in song uh, in our second service. She shared it in our first, uh, first service as well and did a fabulous job then and did a fabulous job in our second service. Now, I'm no music expert, I'll tell you that, and my wife would be glad to confess that it's true. Uh, she's heard me sing up close and personal, but I didn't hear any note that Sherry missed in this service as versus the first service. You know, I'm convinced that two of the enemy's greatest tools that he uses against us is first, discouragement. He knows that if he can keep us discouraged, he can keep us from really doing what he has called us to do, and he can keep us focused on ourselves rather than focusing on God's kingdom. And the second tool that he uses against us is fear. There is no doubt about that. As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy, the, uh, the first chapter in the seventh verse, the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's writing to him, encouraging him, his, as I read the verse of Scripture, is, I imagine in my mind, Timothy must have been going through a challenging time because he tells him, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and self-control. And you know, that's one of the great promises we can claim in God's Word. The enemy wants to use fear to paralyze us and to keep us from being effective and what it is that God desires for us to do. Now, my fear has never been speaking publicly. My greatest fear in life is one Sunday, Brother Andy is going to say, now Brother Jeff is going to come and sing the solo. And on that Sunday, you can know for one thing, one of two things has happened. Either Brother Andy's lost his mind or I've lost mine. I don't know which one, but I can tell you that is not something God has called me to do is to sing any solos. But you know, we are encouraged in Scripture to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And we are encouraged to sing words of praise unto Him. It is part of worship. So I encourage you every week, even if you may not have the greatest voice, I encourage you to participate, to be involved in singing praises unto our Heavenly Father. Did you know that most of the Psalms were songs that were sung a lot of the psalms were actually songs that were sung by the children of Israel as they went up to the temple. As they would walk up the steps into the temple to go and worship the Lord, they would sing songs as they were entering into His courts. So I want to encourage you to participate, be involved. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. It is refreshing when we can sing praises unto God. Now, I want to stop this morning and just brag a little bit. First, I want to brag on Jesus, because Jesus is the one that's really worth bragging on. But I also want to brag on Brother Andy. He is such a blessing. I don't know if you've noticed all of the children and all of the group of the choir up here. I'm so excited with that. I'm excited to see the children lined up across the front Oftentimes in the early service when the children are arriving, there's a sense of excitement that they have. There's smiles on their faces, and they're really, they're raring to go. You know, I, I don't always see that on the adult faces, though. So. <laughs> you know, I often see them, and they're like, oh, it's so early in the morning, you know. And, but the children bring a sense of excitement when they sing, don't they? And I'm just really it just brings a great sense of encouragement to see Brother Andy incorporating 
everyone in the church uh, when it comes to singing music. And so I'm very grateful for him, and I'm thankful for the choir, how well they did. I know they put in a lot of long hours singing. Well, I want us to turn our attention this morning to a subject that I believe is of great importance for the modern-day church. This morning, I'm going to be speaking to you about spiritual awakening. You know, what we call revival. You know, as a boy growing up, I can remember we oftentimes would have week-long revivals. Do any of you remember those days? I remember, you know, it would start one Sunday and it would end the next Sunday. I shared with them when the early morning service, Miss Terry Harris was here, and Miss Terry's father, when I lived in Burkeville, my dad used to have uh, uh, Terry's father come and hold revival for us. And it was always one of those week-long revivals. Now, the reason I enjoyed Brother Bear coming is I knew on Thursday he was going to cook gumbo. And we always ate well when he came, uh, uh, you know, and held revival at the church. But I can remember that years ago, we would have revival, and you know what would take place? There would be services in the morning, there would be services at noon, and there would be services in the evening. Do y'all remember the old cottage prayer meetings that would lead up to revival? Do you remember those? I can remember those as, as children. You can tell I'm kind of dating myself, but I grew up in, the, in, in a Southern Baptist church. My father was a minister all of my life, and I remember those old good revival services that we used to have. And then I remember they went from seven days, and then we kind of started doing the five-day thing. Do you remember that? It would start on Sunday, but we would finish it up on Friday. And then before long, you know what? That became really long. And so then we had to go to like Wednesday. We'll do like Wednesday, Sunday through Wednesday, we'll do revival. But we won't do morning services anymore because that's kind of early. We don't want to be involved in that. And we don't want to disposition. We don't want to put people, you know, at a, at a bad place trying to get ready to go to work in the morning. And then you know what eventually happened? Well, we're just going to have a one-day revival. We're just going to do Sunday. Sunday morning, Sunday night. That's all we're going to do now. And eventually it's gotten to a point where we don't do revival at all anymore. Have you noticed that? We don't do a revival at all. And I wonder sometimes if that has had long-term effects on our churches. We don't really set aside a time any longer to meet with God. We don't really come seeking God's face and asking Him to do something in our lives that is unexplainable, something that can only be attributed to Him. We don't really line up at the altar anymore and weep over the loss of our community. We don't really ask God to do a work in our life. We don't really ask God to break our hearts over our sinfulness. Would you agree with me on that this morning? And I think sometimes what has happened in the American church is we've become happy with the status quo. Don't make me uncomfortable. I'm satisfied right where I am. If you remember last Sunday, we entered into a time that we are calling 30 days of prayer, and what we are asking God to do is to move in our lives 
in a way that is only explainable by saying it is of God. By faith, we are trusting that God is going to do something in our hearts and in our lives and in the life of this church. Last week, we challenged you to concentrate your prayers on the church, and we gave you five specific areas to pray toward. This week, what we want to challenge you to do is the same thing. When you walk out of the worship services this morning, as you leave the worship center, you are going to receive another one of these prayer guides. But this week, we're asking you to focus your prayers in a different area. This week, we're asking you to focus your prayers on families. Now, some of you may be asking the question, well, why families? I can't think of any group in America today that is being bombarded more than the American family. As I look at the environment of Washington, D.C., as I look at the politicians that lead our country, I am amazed at how they are working to undermine the traditional Christian family in the laws that they are placing or passing in the world in which we live. And I know this, the enemy understands if he can wreak havoc in the family, he can wreak havoc in God's church. He is convinced of that. And I believe that with all of my heart. So what I want to encourage you to do this week is take one of these, please, each and every day, pray through the guide that we've given you because we are asking you to pray specifically for the families in this church. We are asking you to pray for their marriages. We are asking you to pray for them as parents if they have children. If they have children, we are asking you to pray for their children, that their hearts and minds would be open to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that parents would raise their children in the admonition of the Lord. We are asking you to pray for the family unit as a whole. And then we are encouraging you to pray for extended family. Maybe you have loved ones that are lost. Or maybe you have loved ones that have gotten very, very far away from the Lord and they need to come back. I am convinced that the single greatest power we have as believers comes from the bended knee. And so often it is the last place that we go in time of need. It should be the very first place that we go to. It's to our Heavenly Father. He loves us and He cares for us. So I'm encouraging you. On the way out this morning, what will happen is the ushers will give you one of these prayer guides. I encourage you to take it home, spending some time in prayer. I have heard wonderful testimonies this morning of people sharing with me about how God was working in their hearts and in their lives. May the 6th, we're going to come together and we're going to celebrate what it is that God has done in our hearts and life. We're even going to celebrate in anticipation of what God is going to do in the future. Because I'm believing, I'm trusting by faith that God is going to work in our hearts, and in our lives. I'm convinced that God wants to do something in each one of our lives. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I ask that you open them to Revelation, the second chapter. Revelation, the second chapter, and in a few moments we're going to be reading a passage of Scripture there. 
This morning we had such a wonderful time of worship in our early service. God's Spirit, you could just really sense the Spirit of God moving and working in the hearts and the lives of people. At the end of the invitation, I went back over to my office and the first prayer that I prayed was this, God, please do it again. And then I thought about that and I thought, well, you know, I don't know that that is the very best prayer to offer up to the Lord. And then I changed my prayer, and this is what I prayed. I said, God, don't do what you just did. Do something even greater than that in our second service. Move in our hearts and lives in such a way that we can say, it has been great to be in the house of the Lord. God has worked in my heart and in my life. God has stirred me inwardly. He has flamed to life those coals that were simmering in my heart and life, and he has flanned them into a flame that will carry me out into a lost and dying world. This morning as we begin this service, I shared with you, I want to speak to you about a message that I believe, or a subject that I believe is of great importance for the modern day church. I would like to speak to you on spiritual awakening, or what we sometimes refer to as revival. I want you to listen to some, to some statistics that I ran across this week. And I think when you hear these statistics concerning the state of the country in which we live in, your heart will be as broken as my heart. Now, these are not the most or the newest of statistics. They actually come from 2015. But I want you to hear about the state of our nation. 72% of adults 18 to 28 years of age fall into one of the following categories were aborted in the womb, have had an abortion, are in the penitentiary, are out on parole, are addicted to drugs or alcohol, have attempted suicide, or they are in the occult. Did you hear that? 72% of all people, 18 to 28 years of age, fall into one of those categories. That's sobering, isn't it? 81% of young adults cohabitate. Homosexuality is celebrated openly in American society. Gay marriage is legal in 18 states. The fastest growing religion in America is not Christianity. The fastest growing religion in America is Islam. The second fastest growing religion in America is not Christianity. It is Mormonism. The third fastest growing religion in America is not Christianity. It is the occult. The fourth fastest growing religion in America is Christianity. More churches closed in the year 2015 than any other time in the history of America. Over 2,500 churches closed their doors in the year 2015. And the list could go on. But I think you get the picture of what I am trying to paint for you this morning. No nation has gone where America has gone and not faced the judgment of God. 
and I am convinced America will not be the first. At some point in time, if we continue to head in the direction that we are heading as a nation today, I can promise you we will face the judgment of God in the future. That is scriptural. It will happen in our lives at some point in time or the life of our children or our grandchildren. We cannot continue to head down the road that we are heading as an America as a nation, and not believe that one day God is not going to hold us accountable to what we have done as a nation. He will hold us accountable one day. That is the truth of the matter. So as you think about that right there, those statistics, this is the question I want us to, uh, to consider what is the answer? Now, some people in the church would have us to believe this morning the answer is America needs revival. But is that true? Does America really need revival? Now, I think that some of you will be very surprised by my next statement that I'm going to make, but just please stay with me. America does not need revival. The American church needs revival. That is what needs reviving. Did you hear the passage of Scripture that Brother Wade McLean read to us earlier? In that passage, God very clearly said, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then this is what I do. I promise I will heal their land. He didn't say, if the President of the United States would get his heart right, then what I'll do is send revival to America. He didn't say, if the politicians in America would all get on my page, then what I will do is I will spiritually awaken America from its stupor. He didn't say, if the drug lords and the criminals all had revival in the prisons, then what would happen is... That's not what he said. God's Word makes it very, very clear. If God's people, who are called by His name, will humble themselves and pray, then this is what He promises He will do. He will heal our land. What the American church needs to do is we need to take ownership for what is happening in America. We have failed to be the salt and the light of our communities. The church is the cause, and hear what I'm about to say, the church is the cure. It is the cure for the, the situation we find ourselves in today. If only God's people will humble themselves in the presence of the Lord, God will take and He will stir our hearts and He will do something great, a great and mighty work in this land. But it starts with God's people, not with those outside the church. What needs revival in, the, in America is the American church. Now, I believe that I have identified the root cause for a lack of revival among American churches. This is it. 
forsaken love. That's what it is. Forsaken love. We are like a church in the New Testament. We are like the church at Ephesus. When Jesus Christ said, you have abandoned, you have forsaken your first love. Listen, folks, when we love the things of the world more than we love God, Jesus himself, we can expect there will never, ever be spiritual awakening in God's church. If we're going to experience spiritual awakening in God's church, it will only happen as we radically pursue Jesus Christ with every ounce of energy and strength that we have. That's the only way it will happen. As I shared in the early morning service, I will tell you this is one of the most challenging sermons that I will ever preach to you as your pastor. But I will also share with you that I include myself in, in, in everything that I am saying today because I am a part of the American church and I stand in need of revival as much as all of you stand in need of revival. That is true. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at the words of Jesus Christ, the words that he spoke about the church in Ephesus. If you have your Bibles, open them to Revelation, the second chapter. The church at Ephesus had one of the richest legacies of any church in the New Testament. Think about it for a moment. It was on Paul's second missionary journey that he went to the city of Ephesus and he planted a church there. Luke records for us in the book of Acts that he returns again to the church at Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And on that journey, he spends almost two years or a little over two years with the church at Ephesus, teaching them and encouraging them. After Paul left, do you know who followed Paul? Timothy followed Paul. Timothy comes, and most people believe that Timothy becomes the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And if those two men were enough to give them a rich legacy, do you know who else follows after that? The Apostle John is also connected with this church. So when I look at these three men, think about it. Paul, Timothy, John. I say to myself, wow, this church had a rich legacy. But by the time John writes the book of Revelation... This church had gotten way off track. Something had happened. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now I want us to stop right there because I think it's so very important that we understand the context in which Jesus Christ is speaking to this church. This is Jesus Christ's assessment of what he sees in this church. He says in the opening verse of this passage of Scripture, to the angel of the church in Ephesus right, most people believe, most Bible students believe, the angel actually refers to the pastor of the church. The seven golden lampstands that are present there, each one of those represent the church. And who do we see standing in the middle of the churches? 
We see Jesus Christ standing in the middle of the churches. He is sending a very important message to this church. He is saying to this church, it is He who leads, guides, and directs the church. He is the one who is the head of the church. It's not man's agenda that guides the church. It is Jesus Christ who leads and guides His church. So only Jesus Christ has the right to speak about what the church should be and what the church shouldn't be. Now I want you to go back and listen to what he says here. In verse 2 he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the names, I mean, for, for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, I want us to stop right there, because if no other verse of Scripture was written about this church right here, I would say this is the church that you could sign me up for. This is the church that I want to be a member of. Did you hear what Jesus Christ said about this church? He said this was a church that was a serving church. He said, I know your works. That word works there indicates their service unto the Lord. This church was a serving church. But not only was it just a serving church, listen to what else he says here. He says, I know your works. I know your toils. That word toil means to work beyond the point of exhaustion. This church was a sacrificing church. They had gone beyond the call of duty. But listen to what else he says here. But he says, but he says and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. This was a steadfast church. This was a church that was standing on the Word of God. But he doesn't stop there. He said this church was also a suffering church. Listen to what he says in verse 3. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. This church had suffered for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you, by outward appearances, this was a great church. But can I also remind you of something very important? Jesus doesn't judge by outward appearances. Jesus judges by what's on the inside, not the outside. Because verse 3 is followed by verse 4. And to me, verse 4 is one of the saddest indictments against any church that is found in Scripture. Listen to what Jesus Christ says. But I have this against you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Jesus Christ saying to you, I have this against you? Can you imagine Jesus Christ looking at the church here in Cre at Crestwood and saying, I have this against you?
That's what he said about this church. I mean, I hear these words. I have this against you. And then Jesus Christ makes this statement following that. Listen to what he says here in this passage. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. When I hear those words, I ask myself the question, is that even possible? I mean, think about it for a moment. This was a serving, sacrificing, suffering, steadfast church. And I almost want to stand up and I want to say, Jesus, you obviously must have made a mistake. How can a church be sacrificing for your name? How can a church be serving in your name? How can a church be suffering for the cause of the kingdom? How can a church be standing on the Word of God and still you have something against them? But it's very clear and evident in this passage of Scripture. And we know that Jesus Christ never makes any mistake. And He says very clear in here, I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. And I think to myself, wow, what happened to this church? Is it possible to be so caught up in serving the Lord, sacrificing for the Lord, suffering for the Lord, holding to the truth of the Word of God, that we forget that which is most important in life? Listen, folks, one of the things we need to understand this morning is this. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is always the best. So often in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, what we do is we settle for the good at the expense of the best. Do you remember the story of Martha and Mary? Remember, Martha is serving Jesus Christ. She looks at Jesus Christ and says, Hey, Jesus, tell Mary to get up and help me. And do you know what Jesus Christ said to Martha? Oh, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. Mary has chosen that which is best. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping Jesus, loving Jesus with a passion in our heart and a zeal in our heart is always what's best. It's always what's best. We must never, ever allow our service unto the Lord, our sacrificing for the Lord, our steadfastness for the Lord, our suffering for the Lord, to take the place of sitting at the feet of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I fear that is what we have done in the American church. Listen, folks. We will never, ever experience true spiritual awakening in our lives as long as we love the things of the world more than we love Jesus Christ himself. It cannot, it will not happen in our lives. As long as we are pursuing with 100% the things out there, I can promise you that God can never, ever send revival in the hearts and the lives of his people. We must pursue Jesus Christ with a reckless abandonment if He is truly going to work in our hearts and our life. If He's truly going to spiritually awaken us, we must lay aside everything else in life and we must focus our attention upon Him. 
Jesus said they had abandoned their first love. But the great news is Jesus hadn't given up on this church. He still loved this church. And so you know what he does? He offers them a solution to their problem. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now hear this. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying unless you are willing to turn away from your neglect and your sin and turn back to me in faith, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove your effectiveness as a body of believers. I'm going to remove your light in the midst of darkness. Do you realize today that the church at Ephesus no longer exists? Obviously, they failed to heed the warning that Jesus Christ gave them in this passage of Scripture, didn't they? They didn't hear His words. Jesus very clearly said in this passage of Scripture, first, you need to remember. Jesus wanted them to go back, and He wanted to remember their, them, he wanted them to remember their passion and their zeal that they once had for Him. And then He tells them in this passage of Scripture, repent. Oftentimes, I think we hear that word, and the first thing that comes to our thoughts and our minds is that's something that lost people need to do. Lost people need to repent, and they need to get their lives right with the Lord. And that is true. But can I also suggest to you this morning that repentance is needed in the life of the wayward Christian as well? Is it not? Yes. In 1970, a great revival broke out in the city of San Antonio. The church, Castle Hills First Baptist, their staff have been praying for some time that God would move among their people. In 1970, on a Sunday morning, the pastor went on vacation and he asked the youth minister if he would preach the Sunday morning sermon. At the end of the song service, the youth minister got up, he walked to the pulpit, and this is what he said, Repent! Repent! repent. And before he could sit back down in his chair, the altars of the church was filled full of people. Over the next four years, 2,000 people in that church got saved. The church doubled in size because there was such a great outpouring of God's Spirit upon His people. But listen to me carefully. There can be no revival among God's people without genuine repentance on their part. That is where it has to start, with us. That's where it starts. And then he says this at the end of this passage of Scripture. He says, and return. The words that Jesus Christ is speaking here suggest to us or suggest to the church at Ephesus to go back to the fellowship that they had neglected in their lives. Restore the fellowship that had been lost. This church at Ephesus, they had forsaken their first love. They had grown careless in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder this morning, if Jesus Christ 
was to sit down and write a letter to Crestwood Baptist Church. I wonder what he would say. I wonder if he would say to us, you have forsaken your first love. Are we guilty of neglecting our first love like the church at Ephesus neglected their first love? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning and close your eyes. We're going to have a word of prayer. The instrumentalists are going to make their way toward the platform to lead us in a song of invitation. I would ask you this morning to honestly evaluate your relationship with the Lord today. Where are you in your relationship with God? You may be serving, you may be sacrificing, you may be suffering, you may be holding to the truth of God's Word. But let me ask you this. Do you love Jesus Christ with the same passion and zeal that you loved Him when you first met Him? Father God, we thank you for your word and the way it speaks to our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that you would guide us during this time of invitation. I pray that you would be honored and glorified. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.